Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Lewis today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. So could you tell me a little bit about your background, you know, what your specialty is and any other information you think might be helpful? Yeah, so background. I'm born and raised in Miami, Florida. I am Haitian descent. Both my parents were born in the island of Haiti. My siblings and I were born in Miami. I am the youngest of three. And I went to a technical arts high school that had like a health academy. So I was following down the pathway of, you know, I guess kind of my mom. She's a nurse. And my sisters also did nursing during the same exact high school that I went to. They're both five and seven years before me. And then I followed down that pathway. And I guess I was interested in it. I liked the sciences. I really liked math. Then I went to Florida State University. And while I was an exercise science major doing some of the pre-medical courses, I also got into do work as a pharmacy technician. So while I was going to school and going to work, I was saying to myself, well, you know, this is still health related. Perhaps pharmacy is the route for me. So I actually got accepted to pharmacy school believe it or not, in my hometown, um, which is in South Florida. But I ultimately decided not to attend and to do a biomedical science master's program because I was transitioning over from what was more familiar, pharmacy technician, to potentially to go to pharmacy school was accepted, did the pharmacy comprehensive assessment test and whatnot and all the things, the transition from medical school would have taken me another year because I would have to figure out, well, what are the nuances of the different testing and the application cycle and stuff like that. So I said in the interim, I'll just do a master's program that some people do that can either rehabilitate or improve their knowledge in the sciences that they're going to be doing and stuff like that. So I did it in Miami, Florida still, you know, my parents' home. So it was very inexpensive for me outside of the loans I took. And I enjoyed it. I think it prepared me for the coursework of medical school. And that very next year, I got accepted to Howard University College of Medicine, a medical school that my mentor went to. A close friend of mine had graduated there seven years prior. So I found that the biomedical science program, especially for me, that was transitioning over from one field to the next, although not too different, it helped me kind of align my thinking as to the medical coursework that I would be facing. So after I got accepted and I did my first two years of, of medical school, you know, it showed that I was able to do very well on content that I had seen before during my master's program. So I enjoyed it. It's so much so that I said, you know, what's the next thing? You know, it's always what's the next thing? You're, you're doing something. How can you be better prepared in that area? How do you stand above everyone else who's also doing what you're doing? How do you kind of define yourself with some of the early thinkings that I was doing my first year of medical school? Not to say that the content wasn't hard enough to keep me up all night, but I had a great study group. And we were able to do some amazing things. So I said, I need to look into research opportunities. 
So believe it or not, I looked at the surrounding area to see what opportunities can, you know, I take advantage of. The DMV area is amazing. DC, Maryland, Virginia, because there's all these great institutions. There's all these great activities happening in the city's capital. I actually looked next door to our hospital. Howard University College of Medicine is a small historically black college. The program that I'm currently doing had about two surgeons in the hospital doing that. Whereas many places would have no less than five to 15. So very, very small program. In fact, one of the guys who was a surgeon there was actually transitioning out to be a chief somewhere else. So I didn't have much mentorship and exposure, you would think, but I sought it out and I'm excited I did. So when I went next door to Children's National Medical Center, there was a gentleman by the name of Richard Jonas and another attending by the name of Dilip Nath who were doing research opportunities as part of their you know, standard academic slash you know, surgical practice. They were congenital heart surgeons, also known as pediatric heart surgeons. And I didn't know that <laughs> to, this, uh, you know, to that point, that they were extremely well-trained, a rare uh, specialty in the United States, you know, in, as a subspecialty of adult cardiac surgery to also have done additional training in pediatrics, very difficult thing that they were doing. I actually approached Dr. Nath and I said, I'm interested in research. Are there any opportunities for me? And before that was over, I had three publications that I did with Dr. Dilip Nath under Dr. Richard Jonas. And then Dr. Richard Jonas sponsored me with recommendation letter and everything to actually uh, spend my first summer at Mass General Hospital, where there was a thoracic surgery research fellowship program for young medical students between first and second year, which is usually your time where you're free to either do something that's enlightening or enriching in medical school. Typically, most first years have their time off for summer, finishing first year. So I did that, and I've just been kind of addicted to the specialty since. And could you just clarify for me, what exactly is your specialty again? So I am a cardiothoracic surgery resident. So I would say below your Adam's apple, above your belly button surgeon. Well, that's certainly a very interesting journey you took. I was kind of curious, what was your thought process for choosing medicine over pharmacy? You know, I think that that's, believe it or not, a tough question. I think both fields are amazing and do amazing things. My exposure to pharmacy wasn't little. So I was able to make a decision that I think in hindsight, I do not regret and was more fitting for me. So I walked into CVS and asked for a job on my sixth CVS that I walked into. I was hired as a pharmacy technician. I had to then learn on the job or you can do like a six month program. But I learned on the job, passed my certification. And I was a certified pharmacy technician and tried to rise to the rank of lead pharmacy tech you know, you're working with the pharmacists. And I worked at two stores. When I went back to South Florida to do my master's program and other things, I was still kind of still doing it. So I was very familiar with pharmacy. So much so that during the time that I was transitioning, when I was doing the master's program, I actually took a job at a medical institute that taught pharmacy school. So I was a pharmacy technician instructor for about a year and a half's time. I loved every bit of it. But I thought that I would probably have more utility 
with my needs being met and what I'm doing, if I was just a little bit earlier on in regards to the medical therapeutic management decisions, you know, why are we giving this medication as opposed to I'm dispensing this medication and these are the side effects? What are the better ways to treat this problem as opposed to these are the current different types of medications in this same class. You know, I understand them all. I safely distribute them all and not cause harm between the other medications. So I found that I was more interested in being earlier on on those decisions. And then how did you get from kind of an interest in pharmacy to surgery? Because that seems like a, a big leap in terms of the therapeutic approaches. Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest with you. At this point, I finally learned a little bit more about myself. I am more so the past of least resistance. As crazy as that sounds, you would think heart <laughs> surgery is uh, pretty resistant. But the opportunities have fell in line because I went looking for them. So it wasn't as though I was looking to do something that I had no experience, no exposure in. So it was as simple as I'm not going to do pharmacy because I think medicine is going to be my career choice for the reasons that I alluded to earlier. And then when I got to medical school, I was actually not going to do surgery. I was actually adamant that I was going to do internal medicine, potentially cardiology to follow because internal medicine, I would like to believe it is a specialty that leads to the most subspecialties as well. So if you're not really sure you know, what you're doing, not only do they know everything, my opinion to some extent, they also are doctors of the organs that you take care of as well. So there are multi, multi different, you know, directions that you can go, but it just so happened that there was a surgical interest group. And I learned a little bit more hands-on about being a surgeon and that there is not a gross disconnect in regards to taking care of patients and managing them. In fact, the reverse is true. We do a lot of medicine. You know, we take care of patients who are sick, who essentially need surgery. We do organized trauma to them, and then we need to rehabilitate them so that they can go home. So not only are they sick, we make them worse and then try to make them better so they can go home. You know, there's a lot of medicine in that. So I realized I wasn't really missing anything. And I also get the opportunity to touch someone's heart. How can you pass that up? Could you tell me a little bit more about the after surgery portions of what you do? Because I guess when I think of surgery or surgeons, I just think of the OR. I don't really think anything else happens afterwards. I'm happy you asked that. There's so much that happens afterwards. There's so much that happens even before. I'll give you a quick synopsis of my day, for instance. As a chief resident of cardiothoracic surgery at my institution, I'm coming into the hospital plus or minus 5 a.m., could be 5.15, and I'm seeing all of the patients in our cardiovascular ICU. Those are patients who have just had surgery. Those are patients who have not had surgery, but their hearts are failing. So they're on some type of mechanical device of which we have many options. Those devices, unfortunately, will never behave like the heart. So they, to some extent, cause a lot of shearing and a lot of stress to the blood cells. So now they behave as though they're bleeding. You know, imagine having your blood in a blender because you're having that type of similar type of process in order to move the blood around because their hearts can't do it for them. You'll have some patients in the ICU who have just had a heart transplant. 
You'll have some patients in the ICU who have brand new vessels bypassing the blockages that they have built over the past 60 years of their life. All of those patients are different. You'll have patients who have a brand new heart valve, which is a new mechanical tool between their heart that is going from one chamber to the next and not allowing blood to go backwards. As blood goes backwards, you cause harm to that previous chamber. You make it larger, you mess up the electrical supply that is within those walls, and now you have abnormal heart rhythm. We get called on patients who are in the trauma bay that just got there and are having chest pain, and then now they have no pulse and they're getting CPR, and they need something to be done to them urgently in order to put them on a mechanical device if medication isn't working and their problem cannot be fixed by a cardiologist, we are essentially there to put them on a bypass tool called ECMO that will essentially breathe for them and put oxygen into their blood for them. So we have to put these huge tubes into the strategic vessels of their body within 10 minutes so that we can keep them alive. And then you have a patient who has an aortic dissection. So the large blood vessel that's coming out from the top of the aorta rips just like you would rip a shirt and blood starts to go through the walls. And potentially if it doesn't go through all the walls, it goes through like half of that wall. It will, because of the blood pressure so high, will climb through those walls and make a brand new pathway. That's inappropriate. That's called a dissection. So all of those patients need some level of management, all of them that I described. If their blood pressure is not good, they need to be on what's called Pressors, which is a very strong medication that you put into their IV as drips. And typically it needs to be a central IV that goes directly to the heart and not through the small vessels in your fingers and, and arm that you would have in, in the ED because these medications can harm your vessels. They can start working on your small vessels in your arm and you can lose fingers from that. So all of these things require management. That means you need to be able to place that IV line into someone's neck and have the tubing aimed at their heart. You need to start them on strong blood pressure medications. If there's something going on with their heart and you don't know what it actually is, you need to get an echo, which is called an ultrasound. That's a cardiac ultrasound, an echocardiogram. Looking at the heart and you're saying to yourself, oh, there's not enough blood. There's too much blood. There's a lot of movement. It's not moving. The heart's not moving because this is a problem. The valve is letting everything go backwards. So you're strategically thinking of all these things. Now, all that's pre-op. Your question was about post-op. So after we finished doing a procedure on a patient, for instance, I did a, a cabbage, which is called a coronary artery bypass graft today. That procedure treats coronary artery disease. Coronary artery disease is called heart disease. Heart disease is the number one reason why you and I may die in our lifetime. There is nothing higher. No breast cancer, no cancer, period. If you look it up, what is the number one reason why human beings are dying these diagnoses? It is heart disease. And this procedure puts brand new blood vessels there. But when you're done doing heart surgery, you expose someone's heart, you need to actually stop it. You need to stop their heart so you can actually work on a heart that's not bouncing around. Although we do that sometimes, but preferred, we would like to stop it. You have to reroute all the blood flow and then you have to restart it. Sometimes the heart is a little bit swollen. So therefore its performance is not going to be as you expect and you need to help them. So every day that they're there in the ICU, you're manipulating those certain medications, but you don't want them to be on those medications forever because even that could be harmful. So there are a lot of balancing that you need to do 
so that you can get a patient back to full speed because after heart surgery, their entire body, every single organ has ran a marathon and you now need to recover it. The kidneys are upset because they weren't getting their normal expected blood flow that they expect. When we put them on bypass, it's a different type of machine. It's not like the heart which squeezes and then lets go has cysteine diastole. No, this is circulating like a water hose. And the body, believe it or not, doesn't like that in the long term, among other things. So there are a lot that we do. Our patients can get infections because they have six-inch incisions sometimes. Other times we're doing complex procedures through small incisions. So therefore, their risk of that is smaller. But that means that the procedure is a little bit more difficult and maybe an hour or two longer. We need to make sure their kidneys working so that they're making urine. We need to make sure that their blood pressure can hold on its own and we're not supporting it anymore. We need to get them extubated. That means a breathing tube needs to come out. But unlike getting your appendix removed, that breathing tube does not come out at the end of the procedure. You go to the ICU and when you can prove you can breathe on your own, then it comes out. Some of our patients who have heart disease also have heart disease because they've smoked for such a long period of time that their lungs also are abnormal. So we need to rehabilitate these patients who have more than one disease process. So thank you for such a broad understanding of that. That certainly helped me have a clear understanding of all the different moving pieces that goes into the form of medicine you practice. So with all of this very diverse ways of, you know, helping people at your disposal, you know, what comes to your mind when you think of the word healing? When I think of the word healing, the first thing that comes to my mind is trying to make them better. They come to us in distress and we discharge them a little bit better than they came in. I'm almost looking at the patient that I'm seeing when I get a consult. Hey, doctor, they have this problem. And then the day that they're going home and there's a whole marathon in between, to be completely honest with you. But if you were to ask me outside of all that we do, when I saw them that first day and when they're being discharged on day seven, I would like to believe that that is healing. And I'm also curious, do you remember the first time where you really thought of yourself as a healer? Yes, I do. I do. So that first time was a, it was a, a big deal for me. I was a first year cardiothoracic surgery resident. And by the way, my pathway is a six year training program of which at the time that I matched, there was 22 programs training one to two people per program, unfortunately. And there were 27 seats. The numbers are pretty similar now. There's probably 30 something programs now, and it's still training about one to two, less than 45 people a year for this fast track. The problem is there is a steep learning curve because the traditional way to become a heart surgeon is to do five years to seven years of general surgery, then two to three years of heart surgery. Most of my attendees now have done 10, 11 years of training before they did anything. So as a first year, essentially someone who just came out of medical school with no general surgery background, I was doing a procedure with one of my attendings at the time, and it was straightforward. It wasn't even high risk surgery for heart surgery, so to speak. 
but you know we did expose the heart we did do a couple of manipulation you know on the heart itself we closed them up and the patient did fine brought him to what's called the PACU which is the post anesthesia kind of recovery area and as I was discussing with the nurse who was in front of me because typically what we do we do what's called a handoff whenever we're changing care from one place to the next we want to make sure the new people are fully informed about the patient and I was having a conversation with the nurse you know who said how did the procedure go I said the procedure went fine and I'm staring at the patient and I'm looking at the vital signs as I'm speaking I'm saying hey we did this there was no problem and as I'm continuing to elaborate the patient was no longer with us he his face was blue his saturations and that number was going from 100 percent to 95 to 90 to 85 and it was surreal you don't practice these things you know when an emergency is taking place, something else takes over. It's not something that you've been practicing emergencies forever. Although there are places that have great simulation, I was a baby in all respect. This was my first <laughs> few months of heart surgery coming out of medical school. And for that moment, I was the only doctor in the vicinity of the patient that I was taking care of. There was no one else who could act. I would have to step up and lead this situation. And as I continued to look, I saw that his EKG was now flat. He was no longer responsive. And I was telling the nurse how very well he did during the procedure. And at that moment, everything stopped. And I said, if I don't heal this guy right now, this second, it's over. He's a father. He's a brother. He potentially is an uncle. I actually don't remember that part. But he is someone, someone. He is something to somebody somewhere. And for his life to potentially end and me not be able to help that, that's a concern. So I immediately said, call a code right now. I asked them to drop the bed all the way down and I began CPR. And I'm going as hard as I can because it's very important that you depress the heart to a certain extent so that you can empty it and then it could passively fill and then you can empty it and you're essentially mimicking what the heart would be doing if it was working on its own. But I knew that that's not enough because in the end, he already has a heart problem, right? This is a guy we just operated on. His heart's not normal. Typical CPR might not be enough. It's not like TV. I'm going to need some strong blood pressure medications. I'm going to need some strong medication that's going to make his heart wake up. And I might need another skilled hand. So while I'm telling the nurse, hey, grab Epi. We need to perform ACLS. We need to code this patient. You know, ACLS is kind of what you actually learn in training to code someone who has a cardiac problem. And I looked around, I looked around to see if there's anybody else that was potentially helpful. At this point, a crowd is gathering and everyone's scared of the heart. I'm the only one who's training <laughs> in the heart, but everyone else is familiar with like the other, you know, things like medicines and breathing and breathing tubes and stuff like that. But the heart itself was not necessarily well understood by the available help that was around outside of myself. My attending was already talking to the family and was somewhere very far away. I actually had him called and the phone just kept ringing. I had to move on at that point because I had to keep going. And that's when I saw one of my other attendings. He does not practice heart surgery. In our specialty, you're trained in both, but you practice either heart or not heart. 
and the actual name is general thoracic. That means your lungs, your trachea. That means your esophagus. That means the early parts of your stomach. You do all of those surgeries and you're well-versed at operating around the heart because you have to learn both in training. But our specialty is becoming so complex that very rarely is the person who does both operate on the lungs for like cancer and, and operates on the heart. It's very skilled sets you need to have. But I called him over and immediately he saw what the problem was in regard to that. We are in a cold situation and he came, he assisted. He said, hey, where are we with the medications? You continue to run the code. I'm going to help get whatever we need access for IV lines to make sure we can get the medication in. And then he looked at me he said, you're going to have to open up that incision. And he's maybe 10 years out from having done heart surgery technically. So I'm going to have to open up this incision and I'm three months in and he's 10 years out. So it's interesting. So I opened up the incision because it's very easy to have a couple of diagnoses that can be relieved by you opening up the incision and exposing the heart. And those couple of things are called cardiac tamponade. That's when there's blood that forms around the sac of the heart and the blood comes out with so much pressure, it starts to squeeze on the heart itself, preventing the heart from filling. And when I opened him up, that incision, blood was released. That was my experience. And uh, I followed him up and he did ultimately get discharged home. I broke a couple of ribs during the CPR, which honestly is a marker of good CPR. And that may sound crazy to say, it's not your goal, you should never ever aim to do that. Yeah. I, mean, I put that on there. But honestly, in order to do a good job to really depress the heart, you need to have a certain amount of depression. And for patients whose um, ribs are very stiff, that compliance come potentially um, with small fractures. Wow. I mean, that is certainly a harrowing story. And it was so clear to me how in the moment you understood that, you know, this patient was a person and that you were fighting for like a person and all the people who were connected to him. It wasn't just some sort of medical thing that you were doing. So I guess the question that I then have coming from that is, have you ever had a time where you couldn't heal someone? And how did you cope with that? Yeah. So unfortunately, in my line of field, there are many a times where I cannot heal someone. And I would say coping is difficult, but I understand the role that I must play. You know, as someone who can identify themselves as a healer, I also understand that I have limitations. This is not something that I am practicing because I know it all. Unfortunately for everybody who I have taken care of in the past, the present and the future, I am human. There are going to be diagnoses that I'm not going to have right away. There are going to be patients who unfortunately may be far too gone before I can intervene. And unfortunately, that is very, very true in our specialty. We see death. I can give you an example of many years ago in a different hospital, a patient was a young man who had a heart transplant and was very sick. How did he get to this point? He did not take his medication. When you have a heart transplant, you need to be immunosuppressed. You need to keep your body at bay from attacking that heart with certain medications that you will take potentially for life, especially when you're a young man whose immunology is very strong. He didn't take it. And unfortunately, as I come to realize, the thought processes amongst young individuals let alone male, which I'm sure is a risk factor for many things, the maturity, the understanding, the clarity, 
you have your parents who are essentially making sure you do these things that you may not necessarily understand. And as you're seeking freedom, as you're testing boundaries, you're saying to yourself, why should I be restricted? Why do I need to see the doctor every month, month and a half, two months, three months? I just had a cold. It's not that big a deal. Why do I need to take these medications? You know, my friend's are doing all types of high-risk activities. Why am I over here medicating myself on like seven medications that, by the way, do have to some extent side effects? His heart rejected, and it wasn't the first time that his heart rejected, and they were able to kind of get him through it. So unfortunately, when your heart rejects, you're going to need another procedure, potentially another heart transplant, if it's appropriate. And by it being appropriate, there are a lot of factors that are at play but one, you can't be too sick in order that you can't even survive a surgery and you need a very big time surgery and your risk factors of rejecting again is always possible. So unfortunately, there was no viable donor for him and he did pass away. He was less than 21, you know, and he was transplanted as a preteen. So I couldn't do anything about that. And at some point, he was on a mechanical circulatory support device that essentially kept him going as though there was no problem. Circulating the blood around these huge devices that needs 24-hour coverage. You need someone within six feet of that device 24 hours. And we exhausted all methods in order to find a viable opportunity to get a solution for him. So unfortunately, he did pass away. And, and I guess the tough part about that is that that mechanical device, a family member can easily see is the source of life. We've seen those conflicts during extubation, you know, patients who require mechanical ventilation, the breathing tube, and may have very limited chance of recovery. Some ask for more time. Others say it's been enough time. And then there lies the conflict. This takes it to a whole new level. You can essentially not have a heart in your body and this device will circulate the blood for you. It comes with tons of complications. So it's not as straightforward as a breathing tube. Tons of complications. You need medications to make the blood thin. Again, as I told you, it causes sharing stress and harms the blood cells themselves. So you constantly need blood transfusions. And other times it needs some procedures to manipulate its parts where you have to go off the device and the patient gets very, very sick and potentially dies because it uses what's called an oxygenator, which gets clogged up. And that needs to be exchanged every so often. So technically speaking, it was never qualified to be on that device for more than four days. And we would use that for patients for more than four or five weeks, you know? So it sounds like part of your coping is, uh, as you said, like understanding what your role is and understanding that you can't always fix everyone, which is a hard truth to swallow. I was wondering, can you tell me about a time where you have received healing in your life? I had horrible asthma as a child. This was probably around the age of five, four or five. And of course, I didn't really understand what asthma was. But for whatever reason, I had horrible asthma, life-threatening asthma. I remember being in the hospital at one point for about three to four months. And, you know, my mom was not expecting me to survive this horrible episode that I had. Ultimately, obviously I did, but then I would have to come home and then every so often I'm doing breathing treatments, you know, and I didn't really understand it because, you know, my mom would say, all right, time to do this breathing treatment where you kind of just sit around and you have this thing going and, you know, all your other friends are playing around. 
my sibling didn't have to use that. So it was quite interesting, you know, that I felt different in regards to my capabilities, in regards to what I felt like my body was failing me and I was so young. Come to find out, I was exposed to potentially a lot of dust during some contractual work that was happening at my house at the time, where like huge air filters with this dust fell near me. And that's kind of when this all happened because I actually don't have asthma anymore. So I only had it as a child. It was potentially triggered by that event. But I did horrible then. And, you know, when I was younger and I even look at it now, you kind of just submit yourself to the process. You trust the people who claim that they are healers and... It's always been interesting. It's not even like you've seen their credentials. You don't see their diploma. Their diploma is probably in their office. If you get pulled over by a police officer, they usually have their badge present. Or if they're going to investigate or ask you questions and, you know, they're in regular attire, they show you their badge. And it's interesting. We submit our lives for assistance, sometimes by people we don't know more than a Google search. So I would say that that was a moment that I received healing. And as a child, I just went to the doctors. That's what you call it. You don't even know their name. You just show up. They're trying to give you a needle and a syringe to make to make you upset <laughs> as a child. And then you just get better. And I think that process continues till today. You know, I happen to be in the medical field, but honestly, when it's something that you don't necessarily understand, in a perfect world, you can submit yourself to someone that you automatically trust by them having the title of physician. It's interesting to me that you pick this story because it seems to have echoes of the story you just previously told of both you and this heart transplant patient, both, you know, obviously you were younger, but still you were mentioning the things like, you know, you felt different. You felt like you couldn't do the other things that other children were doing. And yeah, you also mentioned that for this other patient that likely something was very similar because of all the medication side effects that he was experiencing. So let's say just for a hypothetical, if tomorrow you were told for whatever reason that you could no longer practice medicine, in what way would you try and offer healing to people then? If I could no longer practice medicine, the healing that I would probably practice is conflict resolution. And I say that honestly, in maybe two different areas. Medicine, at least that I have seen so far, requires so many dynamics, social dynamics. There are many teams. You can be a part of the team that's taking care of this patient in the operating room or the larger team in regards to being on the cardiac surgery team or the larger team being a part of cardiac care where you're essentially anywhere from ICU related to in the clinics or EKG monitoring to the larger team, which could be the overall hospital, which has a goal of healing people, making people better or the larger team of being a physician in the United States, let alone a physician at all. In all of those areas, there are dynamics that can be improved. There are opportunities to become a little bit more swift and facile in decision-making and efficient in some of the diagnoses or the processes as to how you provide care. And also, when teams don't communicate, you'll see that there are repeating themes where resources are just not utilized. 
appropriately. Of course, I have examples of that, but that leads me to the next thing. Conflict resolution is something that a leader can provide. So if I couldn't practice medicine, I would probably lead it. Having had exposure to what works, what doesn't, and I at least think that I'm someone who thinks differently or outside the box or innovative, I think that there are ways to improve on certain processes so that we can get to the end goal. That's one area that will be health leadership. But there's also conflict resolution that may not necessarily need to be medicine related, say, at all. As it pertains to, for instance, law school, I've always thought that perhaps that that was really my potential calling that I never pursued um, because some of the skill sets you know, are related. You need to have a profound knowledge of how things work in medicine. It's how the body works. And in law school and being a lawyer, it's about the precedence. But in both opportunities, your goal is to take care of the person that's in front of you. In medicine, it doesn't matter if they're guilty or innocent. They are a big person. They can be the person that shot after someone or who received the shot. My goal is to say, how can I help this guy or gal right now there is a harmful process happening near their whatever structure I need to fix that. Whereas the lawyer's job is to say, how can I take care and defend and or protect my client because they are the most important person that is in front of me right now? I think all of those things require some complex level of communication and knowledge of social dynamics. So if I didn't do medicine, it probably would be in one of those two realms, honestly. Could you give me some examples of what types of conflicts do you need to resolve on a medical team sometimes? You know, obviously you don't have to go into specifics, but just like generally. Yeah, you know, honestly, while trying to deliver patient care, things get stressful. You have resources that are limited, but you also have individuals who have certain job descriptions that may not necessarily be well understood by other individuals. I'll just give you an example. As a cardiothoracic surgery resident, my role is to take care of patients who are on the ICU. If something's outstanding or something needs to be done, some care needs to be offered, should I be able to provide that assistance, I will automatically. It could be as small as some catheter coming out of the skin is bleeding, but I don't want it to bleed all day. We need to take care of that. To as high as someone is coding and I'm in proximity of this patient, that's my responsibility. I need to treat them. I need to provide whatever mechanical stimulation that they require or put them on a device that's going to help save their life and facilitate the exchange for a handoff for the next person to continue that high-level and intensive care. So that's that. But that's only one area. And if I was to say percent time, I don't know, maybe that's 10% of my time, 10, 20%, because the rest of the time I'm in a different setting. I did a five hour procedure today. So now I'm in the operating room where my job is now no longer for the 28 patients on the ICU. It's now for this one human being who is on the table, who is being cooled to 32 degrees and their heart is stopped. And we need to do a good job and restart the heart because we're under a time limit. That's my responsibility then. But then when that case is over, there's going to be someone who's in whatever specialty who's going to say, hey, we have a patient who may have a heart problem. We need a consultation. We need your expertise to help us problem solve because he may require your services. So now I'm a consulting physician. A month ago, I did a transplant. So now I'm a transplant physician. I go out and receive or harvest a heart from a donor, you know, who graciously after um, prior to becoming deceased, 
has planned for their body to be shared with other human beings they have never met. So now I'm taking care of someone who is essentially deceased and bringing that organ, not a person, but the organ of that person to someone else. So I say all that to say when I'm on the ICU and someone needs a complex level of care and they're sick, but I'm expected to be in the operating room shortly to assist whatever surgeon is doing the case, the operating room team may not necessarily know that that's what I'm doing, that I'm currently engaged in active CPR or placing a chest tube through someone's ribs as a blind procedure to treat the removal of a significant amount of blood that's in their chest. That may take a certain amount of time. It's fair to assume that everyone is working hard. So therefore, if you're not present, it's because you're taking care of patient care, especially if they know you're in the hospital three hours prior. But at the moment, their needs are not being met and I'm not able to provide that assistance. And now they have to spare another person to do a role that I potentially was going to be doing. That changes everything. So in a moment of weakness, it's very easy to latch on to those feelings of neglect that someone's not participating or is not here or is absent or is taking longer on something that's more benign of a process, which may not necessarily be true. And the same is also true if I'm in the operating room and my pager goes off, which is true all the time, especially if it's my turn to be on call, then when that pager goes off, they're saying, hey, we have a patient who has this problem that's related to the heart. As a resident, you're the first person who is called. You need to see that person, but you're obviously doing a procedure that's going to keep you away for four more hours. So the non-surgery, the non-surgery specialty physicians who have just called you may be saying to themselves an hour later, why haven't they fixed my issue? Why haven't they showed up? Where are they? I called them an hour ago. It's not like they're doing open heart surgery. Of course, they don't say that last part. <laughs> In fact, you're not able to give a call back until you know, you're done with the case four or five hours later, and you're left to whatever the nurses answer on that pager. They share the information with you, and it's playing telephone because what you say may not necessarily be relayed. Or sometimes junior junior individuals who, who get that message may write it down and actually never give a call back and may represent as though as they as if they have. Oh hey, by the way, Dr. So and so said this and that. It's no big deal. I, you'll get you get to it afterwards. Or they don't tell you and they wrote it down as a piece of paper attached to your pager. And when that case goes longer and now you're ready to go home 5, 6 p.m., you find out that there's three outstanding tasks that need to be done. They went home already, and now you need to take care of that. And you're the only person that was being paid, so your name is behind that. All of those things lead to conflict, and all of those things need conflict resolution. Is there a good process? And honestly, there's an answer for some of these things, to be honest with you. Whenever you communicate someone one way, you need to get two-way feedback. You need to close the loop. So if you ever say, hey, I have a patient who is sick who would like you to come see him, the next step should be, yes, I will come see him. And if you don't get that closed loop communication, then you should consider that the communication was never received until you get it back. Therefore, try another source or understand that they may just be busy and that there should be someone else who was a second call that should be available. Or you just come physically down to the operating room and you'll find us there. <laughs> so some of those things are out of the box. Some of them are as simple as that. And honestly, it takes being creative and innovative to find resources so that that's not a pitfall. It doesn't increase the level of stress or an already high stress field.
Wow. Yeah. Thank you for those great examples. Obviously, having never practiced medicine yet, I wouldn't know the complexities of all the different demands and roles that a doctor has to hold and how it can be really easy to jump to uh, Dr. So-and-so is ignoring me or Dr. So-and-so doesn't care or, you know, this he's always late. So, you know, whatever, um, you know, moral value judgment you wish to ascribe to that. But yeah, so thanks. Thanks for elucidating that. And I'm so glad that, you know, you're someone who thinks about that and tries to, as you said, like kind of creatively solve these things. Because as you said, sometimes it's like pretty simple. Like if you don't get the call back, then you know you have no evidence that the other person actually ever received your message. Thanks to Dr. Lewis for sharing his story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. I asked him the other day why he works in education his answer was just so wholesome. I also get the opportunity to touch someone's heart. How can you pass that up? If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and just an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care.